Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my bud, Joe Hagan. Hey, Joe. Hi, buddy. You know, how you feeling? I feel great. We have some real inside the hive, inside the hive. Way inside the hive. Way inside the hive. Um, I am seven months pregnant or almost seven months pregnant. And it's time we talk about it here. It's time we talk about it. I will admit I had the inside scoop. You did. You've known about this. From early days. And it's because I had to explain myself a little bit. Should we back up? Should we tell them the, the, the tell way the that whole, tell it, the whole tale. it presented itself? So we actually found out that we were having a baby the morning that Joe Biden officially won. And um, I took a pregnancy test and he won in the three minutes that you're supposed to wait. And I totally forgot about the test because I was distracted. Um, Uh, And then to find out that we were having a baby that day felt overwhelming. It really felt like such hope for the future in a, in a bunch of different ways. And uh, we recorded the podcast that week, Joe, and uh, very loyal listeners may remember that you told a story that I thought was so funny at the time that, that in our previous recording of an episode, a random song had started playing in your headphones that you couldn't get to turn off. And it was a song you had never really listened to before. So it was random. And the song was right. On the Sunny Side of the Street. Right. By Count Basie. And I started crying when you told this story. <laughs> and... It's, I mean, it's, it's a very lovely message, but there was no other reason for me to cry except for the fact that I was pregnant. Well, you, in a national and then on a ultra personal level, you were, we were all crossing over to the sunny side of the show. Yes, but if, if listeners had picked up on the fact that this was very strange that this podcast host started crying at a very just lovely little story, we now know it's because I was um, crazy on the inside for, for very logical reasons. Uh, we have a little girl coming in July. We are very, very excited. And it has been such a nice time to be pregnant because I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to buy maternity clothes. Uh, yeah. I'm taking it very easy. And I also feel like the world is just so much more hopeful. And uh, She's going to be coming into much greener pastures than we would have thought uh, <sighs> even six months ago. And by the way, I just want to point out that that means there has been another co-host for the last several weeks, an unspoken third co-host. I will tell you, you guys don't hear her, but when Joe and I record, she kicks the shit out of me because I yeah. think she loves your voice. She like she knows it. She knows to expect it for an hour a week. Or, or she's trying to say, hey, that's not that's not right. That's she's she's got opinions. Oh, I believe me, this girl is going to have opinions. We talk about it all the time. So we're very excited. 
I actually think Joe and I have talked about this off the podcast, but I think I understood women and mothers before this, but I couldn't truly empathize with women and mothers before this. And I think uh, parenthood is something that we should explore on this podcast. I, I think it's so... Um, Absolutely. There's so much, especially in this past year that parents have had to go through, uh, that mm. women in particular in the workforce have had to go through. We've seen so many people dropping out like crazy. Um, and I think that this is something that we should explore and we should have explored it this whole time, but now we have new reason to do it. And I know that yes. we will. And uh, lots of hope going forward and lots of fun things to expect over here. And it makes me think of what we are going to talk about today, again, because it made me very emotional in my almost third trimester state. But uh, we want to talk about family today. And in particular, exactly. the first family. And you and I have read Hunter Biden's new memoir, Beautiful Things, and we have a lot to say about it. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. I read it in the last 24 hours, which you can easily do. Yes. It's a, in its way, a barn burner. You just, you know, you cruise right through it because it's so full of intense emotion, horrifying stories of addiction and the depths of addiction, but all kind of in the context of this big emotional, garrulous Irish family experiencing a big tragedy, the death of the brother Bo which people know about and have read about. But this memoir really takes you into the kind of crucible of that and its effect on the brother who was so tight with him and, of course, the father and the rest of the family. And um, I, I was thinking of a way to like kind of get people who haven't read it yet, which is probably a lot of people, like what's the sort of emotional genesis of this, uh, of that th thrust of the book. And... You know, you have to remember, as he describes in the book, his memory, he's got a vague kind of like memory that he's not sure of is, is totally accurate because he was only three when it happened, but he was in a car wreck. His mother and his sister died and the two brothers, in ways they didn't even understand at the time, 
were bonded forever as the survivors of this horrible ordeal, and, and therefore they were incredibly tight. And so then you flash forward, and we know that Bo Biden died of brain cancer. It was a really horrible thing for their family. It kind of impacted Joe Biden in really deep ways and altered the course of his political career for a while there. And there's a comment in the book that Hunter Biden says, he goes, uh, you know, it had been Joe Biden and his two sons for so long. Joe Biden called them his heart and soul, right? His soul was was Bo Biden and his heart was Hunter. And now he had lost ostensibly his soul. And Hunter asked, if we weren't the three of us anymore, what were we? Mm. And that question kind of hangs over this memoir. Like suddenly there's this big hole in all the, of their lives. And of course, this precipitates uh, Hunter's kind of a descent into a kind of like Dante Inferno of addiction. I think that's a great point about uh, what really stuck out about the the relationship and and sort of the genesis of this. You know, I had I had listened to right around the time that I found out I was pregnant. I had listened to Joe Biden's sort of telling of of Bo's death, his his own memoir. Uh, yeah. that I think is called Promise Me Dad. And right. I cried through that one too. And uh, <laughs> it was so beautiful. And I, I, I was so struck by the book and I've recommended it to a lot of people because I think it, under, it, it helps you understand uh, Joe Biden's humanity and his who he is at his core and, and his motivation at his core and why so many people felt, particularly in this last campaign, that he was the man for the moment because he understood what true empathy was and could understand the sorrow that millions of Americans are feeling always, but particularly in this period of time. And I now feel like Hunter Biden's book kind of blew it away because it is so human. And uh, so, so the book, it goes through the initial tragedy of losing their mother and sister and growing up in Washington and sort of so many mm-hmm. people adopting these two young boys yeah. and and helping raise them in a, in a really remarkable way. Though there's one anecdote that I, I mean, for the first 125 pages, I literally couldn't stop crying. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there's my, reason. I my mean, there's condition, scenes in there that are wrenching. But yeah. they're, they're wrenching. And also my dad was incredibly close with his brother and his brother passed away. And it just, it reminded me, anyone who's, who has a loved one who's very close, uh, who has passed away. I think you can see your family in the story, which is why the Bidens are who they Mm -hmm. are, that you can really see your own shortcomings or grief in, in them and how they present. And so that's, it was very emotional for me to read. But uh, there was one moment where Hunter explains that he and his brother couldn't totally express the fact that they were sad because they felt guilty that if they showed emotion, it would sort of be a betrayal to all of the people who stepped in to make their lives as normal and full and loving as possible. And uh, it just made me feel like you are a child and you are carrying so much weight on you mm-hmm. to not even be able to express your own grief. And of course, like that's such a sensitive thing to think as a child and such an empathetic way to look at the world. 
it was just such a telling anecdote that really broke my heart. And so you have that, and then you have the very detailed account that Hunter gives of his addiction. I know. It's 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 basically, it is a tour of rehabs. It is a tour of how to cook crack. It is a tour of him living with his crack hookup in basically blocks away from the White House when his dad was vice president and then taking an odyssey through California from fancy hotel to seedy motel and getting kicked out of all of them because he was having dealers and prostitutes come and steal from him and do drugs with him and cook crack with him. It is, it, it is kind of the archetype of a of a drug memoir, which you and I have read probably many of, but to hear many. it from someone whose father was vice president at the time and then a presidential candidate is wild. And to your point, I, you know, I read Promise Me Dead too on your recommendation, and I and I loved it. Parts of it, you know, when he gets into the sort of foreign policy stuff, you can fall asleep. But that was what was interesting about this book is that you're getting the same story in in, in essence, but uh, without the politics. You know, he's not himself the kind of politician that his father is. And in some ways, it's much more raw and unfiltered. But what they share is that sort of Irish storytelling thing, right? Which is that there's the heart on the sleeve, occasionally maudlin, very open to, uh, you know, you're going to like like you, you're going to cry when you read about the moment that his brother dies. You know, I mean, it is so, I mean, I was, you know, I definitely was misty reading that. It was intense to read. But the thing that's interesting about this, you know, we've, you and I talked, I think last week about, you know, that we were talking off podcast, but, uh, you know, he's a child of privilege and he cops to that and he's honest about it. You know, I wouldn't have gotten where I am without, at least some of my connections, right? I'm, I'm a Biden son. I got these big jobs and I, and he did well at some of them, you know, before he became first an alcoholic and then a crackhead. But like a, a lot of addiction memoirs, it's an interesting thing because they're a balancing act, right? Between being cautionary tales and confessionals and a little bit dining out on how interesting it is to be, you know, a person of his you know, caliber in the world and descending to the point where you're in like a Motel 6, you know, with a glass pipe, you know, you'll, to your point about learning about crack smoking, you'll never see the chore boy steel wool, uh, brand steel wool ever again, the same, right? Um, But he, he manages to do it mostly, I would say, where you don't feel like he's, the kind of like uh, overprivileged, you know, narcissists that you might like a Matt Gates, right? There's a son of privilege who you don't really even want to know what his emotional life is because you know it's going to be horrible and 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 not great. And but it, and to the degree that you can get closer to the humanity of Hunter Biden, it does reflect on his whole family and his father and his upbringing. Yeah. You know, and the scenes where his father like brings him close and tries to save him really from himself is the redeeming quality of the book, I think, that comes through again and again. Uh, he's He writes that this is a, love, a Biden love story. And I think yeah. that that is exactly right. 
because there is so much love here and, and it's very clear that love at his worst has brought him back to life. But I think the phrase abide in love story is deeper than that in that it's not a clean fairy tale, right? It is not a meet cute and they live happily ever after kind of love story. Abide in love story is twisted and it's fractured and it doesn't mean it's not full of love and heart because this book is definitely full of both of those things. But it is not a straight line. It is not a happily ever after and mm-hmm. it's not an, a neat thing. And I don't think that most of us and our families and our own love stories are dissimilar from that. And I wrote something for The Hive this week about, about the book. And my takeaway, you know, at this exact point in President Trump's first three months or four months, Ivanka Trump came out with her own memoir called Women Who Work. And it was not this book. And it was a very glossy how to have it all, which as we all know is bullshit. But it it was a very detailed account of her rigidity and her 20 minutes of of time with one children playing on the floor with cars and the two book minimum maximum that she has with another child. And once a week she goes on a date with her husband and she color codes her schedule maniacally first online. And then she has a moleskin with another schedule that's also color coded. And (laughs) it was the most unrelatable account of motherhood in which I believe it's like 220 pages and she does not mention her own childcare help. Our arrangement, the fact that she has people who are helping her raise her child, which is such a blessing and is such a wonderful thing that no one should feel ashamed of, however they are able to raise their children and whatever help they need. But to not mention in a book about how you manage your life is feels like a glaring omission to me. And having had to read that book so closely and write about that four years ago, and then reading Hunter Biden's book and writing about it four years later, uh, the, the contrast was so stark to me. And I think it is such a statement about the family we chose over the other first family and who we are as a nation. And I think that to me, it is so important that we made a choice towards people who, you know, the Trumps are all about looking perfect, even though they're yeah. obviously far from it, but they will never own their imperfections. And the Bidens wear their imperfections on their sleeve and love each other anyway. And I think that that's the greatest distinction. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. 
because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. When I finished reading this memoir, there was a little quote at the end where he, he ends the book. I'm not you know, giving anything away here, but the last chapter is sort of a, a letter directed to his dead brother and trying to catch him up on what has happened. And um, he has a quote in there. He quotes Hemingway. Hunter does. He said, the world breaks everyone. And afterward, many are strong in the broken places. And I thought that in a nutshell is kind of the strength of this story and the strength of the Biden story in our national story. You know, we've all been broken over the last two to four years, right? Whether by the pandemic in our personal lives and in our social and business and every other way, or by the Trump four years, which destroyed our idealism or, or tried to. And we were all broken, but afterwards you can be strong. And that's sort of the Biden promise. That's the Biden kind of uh, strength in a way is to pull the strength out of all the tragedy. And this is that tragic story. I mean, this is the most flawed of the Bidens. He talks about in here, Trump had all these, you know, used him as a, the main weak spot in his attack, right? Where's, where's Hunter, right? And attacked the, we know the whole boring Burisma story that he tried to dredge up in Giuliani and he gets into it in the book. It's, it's really the least interesting part of the book. Because it's so lawyered, is, like the chapter on yeah. Burisma, which look, to be honest, if you're coming to this book, you're probably not coming to it for a, a full explanation of what happened in Burisma because A, no. I don't know that there is one and B, right. You're certainly not getting it for someone who is kind of under investigation for for things or yeah. could be under investigation for things. And uh, you're not coming to the book for that. But the, the chapter of that is unsatisfying and it feels very lawyered. Yeah. And it's just dull. I mean, well, and, and one thing about the book that I think we should bring up is that he, in his life, had creative aspirations early yes. on. He wanted to maybe be an artist. He wanted to maybe be a writer. And, you know, the writing is good. It's clean. It's it's economical. Um, you know, he has just to, I mean, we can't not uh, reveal the blurb, the people who blurbed this book, Please. Stephen King, Dave Eggers, Anne Lamott, and Bill Clegg, who also wrote an addiction memoir, Portrait of an Addict as a Young Man. That's kind of a great... Yeah. Uh, slate of blurbs. I feel like if you it's could, a great if, slate of blurbs. You could get yeah. any of them, you'd be the luckiest person to get all of them is really something. Yeah. So he does a good job in that. And there's a there's a he's 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 a compelling writer. And there's a sequence in there in which he talks about how he had already always revered the New Yorker and the Paris Review. These are places that he had always wanted to be published, right? And this is one of the most fascinating parts of the mm. book for me as a journalist. Because in the depths of his addiction, when he's like really into crack, and I think he was in L.A. at the time, yeah. and this New Yorker reporter starts calling him Adam Entus, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, reporter. And he just decides because he's being attacked by the Trump campaign, because he's becoming such a locus of controversy, to just start talking to the guy. And he talks and he talks and he talks and he basically talks about 
how he this reporter basically becomes like his therapist, right? He just starts confessing to the guy. And um, I'm going to read a little paragraph from that because to me, it's one of the great interesting moments in the book. Um, Please. He says, I opened up about all of it with an honesty I hadn't talked with to anyone else except a therapist, a fellow addict in recovery or my family. I told him the truth about how I got to where I was. Subconsciously, the process kept me tethered to the only constant sources of love since the day I was born, my brother and my dad. I didn't realize it at the time, but explaining those relationships was the one thing that kept my eyes open wide enough to recognize salvation when it eventually presented itself. I honestly believe I would not have been capable of seeing Melissa, his now wife, for what she would become to me if I hadn't explored my most meaningful relationships during those interviews. It was a little miracle. The other 22 hours of my day, however, were spent doing every miserable thing I could to bury it all in a deluge of crack and booze. Well, wow. I mean, that's a huge, who would have known? I remember reading that New Yorker article when it came out Me too. in 2019. Yep. Yeah. And who would have known that, A, all those interviews were given while he was smoking crack and that for him, it was like, um, you know, a pivot point of some kind. Um, so kind of an interesting thing for, to think about as a journalist. Well, I definitely feel like no one has ever felt that way about talking to me, but it's, I guess it's possible. <laughs> I don't know. Michael Cohen. I mean, maybe you helped him Actually, out. Actually, that's not untrue. I'm sure. Um, the, the other interesting part of that little section of the book was that he didn't tell anybody in the Biden campaign, allegedly that he was Yes, doing he was that? doing it, freelancing this this whole like, thing. Yeah, <laughs> the, you know, as you as you can imagine, every bit of press around the Biden story in the campaign, they didn't really do anything. Like it was a really uh, quiet operation. With like, even the now first lady did like one interview. The entire campaign, which is unprecedented, there was really no access to any of them. That. Hunter was spending all this time talking to a New Yorker reporter and a Pulitzer winning reporter and telling him the most, you know, personal things and didn't coordinate that with the campaign is just a fascinating journalistic thing. And yeah. I, I thought his explanation for why he did that, which was that he knew that they would try and stop him and and that he wanted to sort of inoculate his father from any of the stuff yeah. that people would put out about him. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting and probably Well, it was true. a campaign decision. Yes. Was a camp he, made a, he made a decision for them. Which is and crazy. And by the way, the title of the article was, Will Hunter Biden Jeopardize His Father's Campaign? So, you know- Asked and answered. They framed it. Yeah. Uh, so fascinating moment in the book. Definitely. And, it's, um, a, it's an inside baseball moment that could get lost. But as two journalists reading it, I know that that section of my book is underlined twice. Uh, I thought yes. it was fascinating. I repeated it to our editor. I, I thought yeah. it was just really, really interesting. And I think your point about A, that article and B, him wanting to be an artist is one worth bringing up too, because uh, look, it's not Hunter Biden did not decide to like create the Betty Ford Clinic and spend his life giving back to other addicts. He chose to write a book about his own story that presumably he will make money from and he will be considered as an author now. So there's not, there is a there's self-serving 
thing here, but it is, it's definitely worth noting. But I, I will say that like, I can understand why someone whose name and story has been co-opted by politicians for years and twisted and contorted the way that any kind of political operative twists and contorts these kinds of things, why you would want to write your version of your story, uh, particularly when that story is so personal. And and he didn't do it in a way that is self-aggrandizing. In fact, I think it's kind of the opposite. I think he did it in a way that is honest. It was honest. I mean, it felt honest and it felt like the kind of book that you you couldn't politic it too much. I mean, you know, you can't write an entire book like this as one big PR scheme. Yeah. You know, it's like it was too real and it's too kind of embarrassing, some of it, you know. And he, he even asked the question, Am I was I being a narcissist? Was I, you know, especially when his marriage is breaking up, you know, and you kind of understand where his wife's coming from. Like, I've had it with you. We're done. You know, when he tries, they had, remember, they take the walk and yes. they are telling each other everything that they feel trying to kind of have a, a marital, you know, come to Jesus moment. And at the end of it, he thinks that they just uh, finally got it out all on the table and the deck is clear. And she's like, no, you know, you have, I can't forgive you basically for all of your terrible behavior. Yeah, it's it's really, it's something. I've never read a book like this by someone who's currently still public. You often read memoirs like this when people are much older. It's a shocking thing for a member of the first family to put out something like this while their father is still in office. I, I can't think yeah. of a historical equivalent that's interesting to me. And that's why I think we're spending so much time talking about this. It is so unusual, but so Biden-esque. And I think yeah. it really does speak to who they are and uh, what their family is like and what they care about. You know, it's obviously because Hunter had an interest in doing this, both in terms of wanting to write his own narrative and flex his artistic muscle and make some money sure. and whatever it is. He had an interest in doing this. And and also we know that he is, he can go rogue and do things without his parents' sure. uh, blessing or approval. And, and when he does that, it's remarkable to see that they just accept him and welcome him back and, and do whatever they need to do to uh, support him. That's a, another remarkable side, but, but um, you know, it's, it's just interesting to me that this, helps the Biden narrative of, yes, we are flawed. Yes, we've gone through the muck of all this, but here we are still we're loving real. each other. We're real. Yes. We're real people. We're real. You know? And and it really has been a fixture of who they are in their public life is, is we're like you. And, uh, you know, the book had no press leading up to it, really. And uh, Hunter did two interviews with CBS, um, which has a co- a shared parent company with his publisher, Simon and & Schuster. And he did Naturally. one interview with Mark Marin, his podcast, and that's it. No print interviews, nada. And that's unusual, as you and I know, both having written books. Uh, it's very cool, actually. It's a very cool lineup, but it's, it is unusual. And it sort of speaks to the Biden under-promise, over-deliver that we're watching in general, happening with right the now. vaccine yeah. rollout in particular, 
all around, it feels very Biden to me. Yeah. So I recommend, I mean, this is not a, a podcast that's meant to sell books, um, though, if we can sell books, uh, particularly through independent bookstores, yeah. I'm all for that. We like books in general. We, we like love, books. Love books. I'm big book fans over here. Um, yeah. I will just say that that I have recommended it to people in my life because I think it was just an enjoyable read. I think it's really interesting that this is happening to who it's happening to at this particular moment. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, do, do yourself a favor, read this book. I think you'll learn a lot about the first family. And uh, even if this were a fictional account, I think you would enjoy the book. That's how I yeah. feel. I felt like it helped me understand his father too more. There were moments in the book where, well, first of all, there's funny moments where he and Bo are boys and they're hanging out in the like, uh, you know, Capitol steam room and Strom Thurmond's in there and all these like, you know, ancient senators who are no longer around are like, you know, BSing in the steam room and these boys are hanging out there. And so they got to see a lot from their vantage and were sort of taken care of by all these other senators and but do you remember there's a scene where Joe Biden is sort of at odds with Jesse Helms over yes. some some bill or another and kind of goes on an attack against him on the Senate floor and then is sort of taken aside by his mentor who says, you know, you can question their positions, but never question their motives. And it was sort of like this moment, you know, very believable to me that Joe Biden takes this lesson and kind of, you know, learns from it and becomes a politician who seems to have made that almost like the core of his personality mm. as a that he can, you know, and it's a great personality to have as a senator because you're having to get along with all these other people and horse trade and stuff over, you know, bills and so forth. But but then in the, in the next paragraph, Hunter's like, but but I think that we can judge the motives of Donald Trump because he says what his motives are and then you therefore you can judge them. It right. Is- and he says it's too bad. The world has changed. But Maybe it can be brought back a little bit more to where some, you know, that's that was also that's the Biden promise. And we're going to watch that unfold here in the next few weeks because of this infrastructure bill. It's all a big dance with the Republicans and about what, how much of this they can get through. Right. Or and how much they can get past Joe Manchin. Right. The Ugh. senator from West Virginia, who's like a pain in the ass. So. Anyway, the book, uh, in addition to being this sort of like, uh, you know, at times lurid narrative about drug addiction is also, again, like I was saying about that Hemingway quote, it really tells you about how much the spirit of the Biden presidency is about how we grow stronger as a country from the experiences we've all had. It is something that we're obviously all thinking about right now as we get ready for this re-entry that seems to be on the way. Uh, the, the president spoke earlier this week about the progress with the vaccine, and mm-hmm. it is remarkable. I am in awe every single day, both by science and also by by this rollout. And obviously, we still have a long way to go. Um, but the fact that within weeks everyone in this country will be eligible to find a shot and that they are so far exceeding expectations of how many people were going to be shot 
or shot and vaccinated by by when is it's stunning to me. It's so remarkable. It's wonderful. I feel so much hope. I feel so excited by it. I got my second shot over the weekend, which um, wow, congratulations. Thank you. Now uh, I can explain that it was a very difficult decision and why I asked our guest a few weeks ago, the epidemiologist, uh, if pregnant yes. women should get the shot because I was right. struggling with the decision. Um, and I literally talked to everyone I could possibly talk to about it, doctors, epidemiologists, other pregnant women, you name it. Uh, and I made the decision that worked for me and my family and my level of risk and all of that. And um, I feel so happy and grateful that I got this and hopefully that the antibodies will transfer to our baby. And um, I just feel I still have, you know, 10 days left until I'm fully immune, but I feel such a weight off and it doesn't mean I Amen. won't continue to be vigilant, but I yeah. just, I can't wait to see my family and um, mm. it just feels so good. And I also, I will say, I felt totally fine after the shot. I was nervous because when you're pregnant, yeah. um, you know, it can be a little bit uh, scary to get a fever. So I was very nervous about that, but I had like maybe a slight headache the day after, maybe slightly achy, but I also like... Every day is a journey for me right now. So it didn't really feel mm -hmm. like anything out of the ordinary. And um, I, f I just want to encourage people. I know that everyone has different reactions and uh, people have been feeling various degrees of shitty for a few days, but I felt great. So if that can help people yeah. feel less scared about getting it. I get my second shot next week, Yay. which I'm very excited about. That is the sort of the continual conversation I'm having with everybody I know. It's like, did they or did they not yes. feel ill after the second one? But you're right about just the weight that is starting to come off. You know, it's a little bit, uh, there's anxiety about whether there's going to be a fourth wave and it doesn't look like exactly that's going to happen. But I'm already just today, um, you know, booked an Airbnb in my parents' town for later this summer. They're both vaccinated. I'm going to be vaccinated. And it'll be the first time I've seen my parents in practically two years. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, it's been a very, um, maybe a year and a half. So, yeah, this is going to be quite a summer, I think. You know, we've talked about that also. You know, there's, We've read in the, in the paper that economic indicators are pointing up. There's a lot of cash on the sidelines from people saving because there was not, not as much to spend on during this time. And as people get vaccinated, I think it's going to be green pastures. We're going to have a, a beautiful new girl in the world that you're going to hear about on this podcast. And I'm excited about that. So excited. And also, I think that we should also uh, remember a, uh, an inside the hive um, moment will be uh, when you and I meet in person for the first time. Isn't it crazy? But it's going to happen very That's soon. Crazy. It's going to happen within weeks. <laughs> Joe, you also have a big yeah. birthday that we're going to have to celebrate. We have to figure out what Boy. your birthday episode is going to be. Yeah. The end I'm of this month. Forget. We should do it. Yeah. We're going to hopefully be able to do it maybe in person. Well, that would be incredibly fun. So and, fun. Uh, you, dear listener, uh, can be in on the party and all the parties, the baby party, the old man party, and all the other parties. Your own party. Wait, can I, speaking of, of parties, 
um, it was it was Lee's birthday on Monday, and we had just a few friends in our backyard. We had a pizza party, nice. and everyone was vaccinated. I was the only one who had not been in the full two weeks, but I had been vaccinated, and everyone else had been yeah. vaccinated for a while. Um, we sat outside, and it was very safe still, but felt like the most normal version of anything we had done in 13 months. And people were over for three hours, three and a half hours. We did not talk about politics once. And I said mm. to Lee, once people left, he didn't notice it. But I was like, can you imagine six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, six years ago, if we had people over for three and a half hours and politics did not come up once, it would never have happened. Not that these are political people. These are people who live in Los Angeles and work in the entertainment business for the most part, I think almost entirely. But it is shocking to me, like truly, truly shocking. Hallelujah. And it felt <laughs> so nice. And it was just like the, per I feel like the combination of the vaccine, of where we are politically, of people being with friends and family for the first time, that you can forget about Washington is really, it really just makes me feel like we are entering a new era. With that said, to bring Washington back into that era for a second, all of those things and feelings that you were talking about and the, the consumer confidence and uh, the economic indicators coupled with the fact that we're not talking about politics in our social settings at nauseam anymore. It does say something about where we might be when we get to the midterm elections in 2022, because they are not far away. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that we have a glimmer of hope on the horizon and we have a little bit of a glimpse into what the national psychology will be like. And it will be yeah, what do you very- think, Yeah. What do you think about that? What do you think is going to happen? Uh, look, I, I have, I'm out of the prediction game because if the last- stretch of time has taught me anything. It's to like, to just admit that you don't know what you don't know. So I admit that I don't know, but I will say that there will be a, a ton of indicators that we will see about uh, mm -hmm. national sentiment, about where we are in terms of our jobs numbers and, um, you know, infrastructure, if they're able to pass this bill is wildly popular. Uh, I think people feeling like they are free after a year and a half of captivity will do a lot for just general sentiment. And, and if Democrats are in control of all of those things, when that happens, that has to bode well for Democrats. Typically, well, I, I agree. I agree. I, yeah. I, I will just add to you, add to that, that people come up to me sometimes and they, or they ask me, do you, they, they're anxious. People still have lingering anxiety about, you know, the right, um, kind of reconstituting itself in the form of people in the mold of the Matt Gateses and Trumps of the world. And I say to them, I mean, I see it being more likely that a booming economy, um, less politics in Washington in our conversations will blunt kind of the more uh, radical side of the right among people who might have voted for them in the past or would be motivated to do so again. They, I just don't think people will be motivated. They won't be the anger. The anxiety level won't be as high. And that's what they were exploiting. That's what Trump was exploiting. 
And if it's not there to exploit, and the only thing they're going to come after Democrats on is like a debt, you can imagine them returning to their roots as like a, a anti-debt, you know, party. LOL. Uh, I just don't think, yeah, exactly. I don't think that um, is a motivate. I don't think that's a big motivator for people. You well, know, it's if definitely they're not, doing well in their life. It's not how what would drives record turnout to the polls, right? And so right. the question, as always, will be who is turning out? Who is, if, if everybody is less motivated because everyone is generally happier and more satisfied and it's not driven yeah. by fear and anger on both sides, which it was, certainly was in 2020, who turns mm-hmm. up? And and that's going to be the whole ballgame, right? It, it really is going to be, who can stay the most motivated while being the least angry? And that's going to be really fascinating to watch. I would say typically in a midterm, you usually see a, a swing toward the party that is not in power. So typically you would see the Republicans gain right. seats during this midterm. But I don't know that that's going to happen this go around. Who knows? Stay tuned. But, but I just think uh, we are entering into a period that would seemingly bode well for Democrats because people, I think, are going to be just more content, satisfied, and less angry, vitriolic, God willing. Well, let's hope so. And, uh, you know, we, like you said, it's dangerous to get into the prediction business and anything can happen. And the news, you know, the world turns on unexpected things all the time. But I think that we deserve a little optimism right now. And uh, I'm glad And I feel good about this, Emily, that um, our podcast has been a font of uh, reasons to be optimistic, Mm. I think. We're keeping Um, it light over here. We'll we'll see. I think that's what the people want uh, after what we've just been through. The sunny side of the street. The sunny side of the street. This has been fun. So much fun. Next week, we may have... I'm not going to tease it because I don't know if we're going to have it, but we may have something great or we may have something great. So either way, tune in for something great. You choose. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Have a great week. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your life. Bye, guys. See you next week. Thank you to Joe Hagen for this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a very nice review while you're there. Thanks to Brett Fuchs for all his great production work and the folks at Cadence 13 as well. Please support our sponsors any way you would support this podcast. We'll see you right here next week. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.